Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. Hope everybody had a good uh, Christmas holiday, despite all of the craziness. And of course, uh, this is a three-day weekend again, if you're planning on taking a four-day weekend for, for New Year's. And finally, we can say goodbye to 2020, which um, I'm guessing is not going to be lamented very widely. Uh, joining us again um, is one of our favorite guests, A.B. Stoddard from Real Clear Politics. Thanks for coming back, A.B. How are you? I am well, Charlie, and it's great to be with you. And congratulations on 500 podcasts. I'm really um, speechless. Uh, what you've put in every single day and how much response you've gotten has been really epic. And I'm really excited for you. Well, we really appreciate it. And, and we sometime on Christmas Day, we crossed uh, 29 million downloads. Um, but again, uh, you know, huge thanks to all of the guests, uh, to our producer, Jim Swift, and to uh, all of you who have subscribed and listened to the podcast over over the last couple of years. We are coming up on the two-year anniversary. Can I make a confession, though? I, yeah. I have to make a confession. We've been doing this for a very, very long time. And I, there was a couple of moments this weekend where I thought, okay, we're almost there. But it was it was it was tough. I, I I didn't actually hit a wall this weekend, but I, I guess it was the the enormity, and I mean that in the correct use of it. Just the enormity of what is going on. The president of the United States sitting and sulking in his tent, you know, putting at risk uh, you know millions of of Americans because he wants to break things and inflict as much pain as possible, while he's spreading the disinformation about the the election and. Just that sense of dread about how many Republicans are going to go along with this incredible fraud. But I'm feeling better today. It's it's it it's been a long slog, and the next three weeks is going to be tough. It it's it's really going to be unprecedented in American history. The um, the sort of desperation, the uh, nothing left to lose mode that the president is in, combined with the acquiescence of Republicans. Um, is is really frightening, and and you and Bill talked a lot about this last week on the pod, um, just how far it could go in dangerous areas of of national security, defense, uh, the Department of Justice, corrupt pardons, on and on, Snowden, Assange. It, we we can only imagine where this goes, and we hope that it doesn't. But what's so upsetting is to, you know, I watched Rick Santorum on CNN try to pretend last week that. Um, the Russia thing was a hoax. And John Harwood, the White House reporter, ably tried in the time he had left to counter it. But this, and, I, and it's why I wrote a piece a few months ago in The Bulwark that it's still about Russia. Um, and it's so outrageous that, you know, the, people don't even remember because we've been in this torrent of news. And this is something that you and I have come back to a million times in our conversations, Charlie. It's like when you're when there's just this giant storm, people don't see explosions within the storm. And so, and so we don't remember that the bipartisan intelligence committee report from the Senate came out and basically said that the president for all intents and purposes lied to Mueller and his written responses knew about uh, Stone's conversations with WikiLeaks on his behalf. Um, and, and watching the, the news just the last couple of days and just seeing that Mike Pompeo's Madison Dinners. I also wrote about him in the Bulwark mm -hmm. a few months ago because he has become such a gangster. You know, he spent forty thousand dollars of taxpayer money holding these super spreader events. On, I mean, they started before COVID, but on behalf of his political future, where he holds these salon dinners and his wife invites everyone on her personal email, and they have the State Department staff, you know, shepherding fine foods in and out and fine wines, and and he invites people that 
usually have nothing to do with diplomacy. And it's all because he wants to be president one day. And this is the kind of thing, this is the kind of corruption that would have just been a massive scandal in any other time and caused Americans to focus on the fact that in our system, we don't do this. But now in the age of Trump, no one even knows that Pompeo story happened. So, in, in terms of the, the explosions within the storms, that's a, that's a great uh, that's a great analogy. Uh, it, it's one of the hard things about a Monday after a four day weekend is remembering what happened four days ago or five days <laughs> ago. And I'm guessing there are a lot of people in, in Trump world who are hoping that uh, by this Monday we've already forgotten about the Manafort and and Roger Stone pardons. And to a certain extent, they were not surprising um, because everybody knew this is what the president was doing. But going back to the Mueller report, and one of the things that I thought was starkly clear is that, yes, of course, there was Russian interference. Yes, there was contact. Um, the, the the Trump folks have, have done a masterful job, I guess, of convincing people that they were hoax along with some of their you know journalistic toadies like the Byron Yorks of the world. But, but the second section of the Mueller report on obstruction of justice makes the case, I, I think a very, very strong case, that the president, in fact, engaged in the obstruction of justice. But what's very clear now is that the obstruction of justice worked. And center to the obstruction of justice was dangling pardons in front of people who could have turned state's evidence, in fact, considered actually cooperating with the administration, Mike Flynn and, and Paul Manafort. You know, it worked. And what you saw last week was the the, the conclusion of the cover-up of this massive betrayal of the country. And it really was just sort of like one of the little explosions in the middle of the storm that we've already almost forgotten about. Right. It was so eerie to hear you and Bill actually talking about Bill Barr leaving on the 23rd and what was just obviously coming just hours later. And the Manafort pardon dangle, Roger Stone, Michael, this is all predictable. It was all foreseeable. It was on the horizon years ago. And the witness tampering, the obstruction of justice, all the it, all of this has been so clear. And you know, you can. I'm sure if 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 I dug up on Google right now, I could find people like Lindsey Graham saying, oh, "Well, if he would, you know, years ago, if he were to pardon Manafort, that would be really bad." And um, now their eyes glaze over, and they're just trying to survive January 6th or January 20th or whatever it is um, that's on the horizon, the new horizon. And and it's. It, it's so blatant, and um, this this pressure now on Joe Biden, right, to to sort of st- to steer the ship back, to 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 right the wrongs, to to fix our, the you know the broken, patch the holes in our system that have been blown open by President Trump and his and his enablers, it is just it's so hard to believe that we're having this discussion about how maybe he should just move on. And because, you know, you don't, you don't prosecute former presidents, you know, we're not some third world country and banana Republic, and we're not going to do this type of thing. Um, When this to, to, to see in plain sight, what, what happened with Paul Manafort as just one example, I mean, setting that as a precedent is just, you know, it's just the Wild West. It's Katie Bar the door. It's just, it, it's just, I know people are not focused on this, just like you said, because it's the holidays and there's so much other horrible stuff developing at all times. And the embarrassment of him caving on, you know, this spending bill just to delay payments for these suffering people by a week, even more. It, it's, there's always something else to eclipse it, yeah. but it is, 
it's so important that people in both parties take this seriously once he's out the door, because without looking back and prosecuting him for obstruction of justice, you let and you let this go, then that becomes an open door in the future. Well, a, a couple of open doors in the future, inclu- including the abuse of the pardon power, um, which was never envisioned by the founding fathers, uh, but also just the, the the general principle that no man is above the law, including the president. I mean, the Mueller report made it very, very clear that he could still be charged with obstruction of justice after he left office. And they stopped short because of that, that internal memo, that policy of not indicting the sitting president. But um, the fact that he went through with his part of the deal with Manafort um, and and Stone and Flynn, um, I think strengthens the argument that you have to do something. Otherwise, you leave it standing. The other question, of course, is is whether we'll ever be able to get a handle on pardons. I'm guessing no. But uh, and I hate to say these words, but the founding fathers underestimated the degree to which that could be abused. In fact, they they discussed it, you know, during the Constitutional Convention, you know, whether anybody would abuse the pardon power to the point where they would pardon their base, their co-conspirators, the people in their circle who might have committed crimes at their direction. And I think they came to the conclusion, no, nobody would do that. And if they did that, of course, Congress would impeach them. But uh, here we are. Here exactly. We are. Uh, the founding fathers, God bless them, were high-minded and earnest folk. And I do, you know, I, I like their um, their vision of the high road, but, but it is... Um, it's just too tempting. If you're if you're a corrupt individual, you use every lever that you can. Trump right. is the best example of that, obviously, we've ever had. And it's always about the grift. It's always about, again, like a mob of protection around him. There's always people he needs to repay who've, you know, in service to him, broken the law. And, and it's he's been propped up by these people his whole career and he wasn't going to stop in the presidency. And again, what's so infuriating Charlie is that we could see this coming and every Republican in Congress could see this coming um, from day one, that of course he would do this. Maybe they just hope he'd win a second term and he wouldn't be pardoning people in December of 2020. I, I don't four, know. Four more but... years of this, the, the good case. scenario. <laughs> see, that's the thing is, is as you're watching what's going on here and, and, I suppose every day we could write a the complete vindication of never Trump, but um, you know, as we're watching this 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 ending, this disgraceful ending of this presidency, to realize how many people wanted four more years of this, and who will even after what's happening now and what will happen over the next twenty one days will still um, uh, say that yeah, let's bring him back in twenty twenty four because we need four more years of this man with the ultimate power in the U.S. government. Good freaking grief. Uh, Tim Miller had a piece uh, over the weekend about these, uh, the Manafort pardon. You know, just read. A, I'm going to read a portion of it here. Amid a raft of indefensibly unscrupulous pardons issued hours after the resignation of the Attorney General, that of Paul Manafort stands out as the worst of the worst. It will go down in the annals of American history as among the most corrupt and self-serving actions taken by a chief executive. Manafort lied and concealed his collusion with Russian operatives at every possible opportunity in order to protect his own ass and to protect Donald Trump. The actions were nothing short of treasonous. So is this pardon. It is the apotheosis of Donald Trump's betrayal of his oath to our nation. And that's the problem that you and I, I, I think we're, we're getting at here is that we've almost lost the ability to get our outrage meter high enough to account for an act like this because there have been so many under Trump. Right. It's so nuclear uh, so often that we, we 
are just numb. We're not capable of breaking out of our, of being numb. And it, it, the Paul Manafort, Constant Klimnik, Donald Trump triangle with Roger Stone sort of coming in and out of that from day one when he chose him as campaign manager. Um, it, this was always of a piece of Trump's it plans to have come to Moscow with Putin, yeah. <laughs> you know, having his son meet with people who promised that their government was helping his father's campaign in the email. It says so. You know, this was always a, a, a large act of collusion, uh, you know, with many players. But the Constantin Kalimnik, D- Paul Manafort, Donald Trump triangle it is just... It's the stuff of movies that you would write as a budding screenwriter about a U.S. presidential candidate becoming, having this kind of campaign and becoming president that people would say, no, this just is not, it's just so crazy and loopy because it wouldn't happen in this country. Because as you pointed out a few minutes ago, Charlie, certainly good and decent people devoted to the constitution would get in the way beforehand and say, this won't stand. So let's talk about what happened last night. The president does caves in on the coronavirus relief bill. We won't shut down the government. Uh, This comes after days and days and days of chaos, confusion, threats that, uh, you know, people will lose their benefits, et cetera. And then he just signs it and gets nothing in return. I mean, this is just, he, he put out a statement trying to put a fig leaf over all of this, but he got zilch, nada, bupkis out of this. The uh, the author of The Art of the Deal just once again proves he's a terrible negotiator. So, I mean, what was that all about other than Donald Trump wanting to just inflict as much pain as possible on Congress because they won't make him president again? Well, we all know that he never has an endgame or an objective That's because right. he doesn't have the focus for that. And he's not a negotiator. He's not a strategizer. He's all emotion, no plan. And he only works within the five inches of oxygen in front of him and a five second time span. Sometimes it goes to 12, I'm told, by members of Congress who've met with him. No longer than 12 seconds. (laughs) And so what's so fascinating about last week is he's now into this, you know, he's in hiding from the press. He doesn't want to answer questions, but he likes to do these videos. (laughs) So at taxpayer uh, expense in front of the presidential seal. So he goes and does these videos with nice lighting and multiple camera shots and takes it very seriously. And then he asked, you know, people have to clean up afterwards. So he wanted to make a dramatic statement. He intentionally never used the word veto as we can all see now. Um, but it, in terms of, you know, the, the guy who prom who wrote, who, you know, who, who had his name on the art of the deal, some a book somebody else wrote. Um, and, and he, and, and he promised in the campaign that, you know, he does deals. That's what I do. I do deals. Yeah. Uh, he never negotiated with Congress. I followed this all the way through. It was always about the fight. It was never about resolution. And he doesn't pay attention and retain information about stuff that doesn't interest him. So when people have told him time and time again, it's a puzzle piece. It's a part of the larger puzzle. If we pull that one thing, the whole thing will blow up. We promise, you know, Senator Snodgrass that we would include that for his vote. No, he, after four years of this, of listening to congressional negotiations, not because he's not involved with them, but they're explained to him later um, by people who know how to explain things to him. He doesn't retain and he doesn't care. And so, you know, conflating the omnibus, the, the you know, mm-hmm. the, the foreign aid, the government spending that are part of the operations of the government. Which he had with asked for, which he had proposed himself. Right. Yeah. It's, it's all of a piece where A, he doesn't sort of care or know, and B, he can always count 
on most of his, you know, fervent supporters not knowing or caring about any of these conflicting details or things that he says, like in a statement last night, that are a lie. Like they think he has a line on a veto and they think that, you know, Congress is going to take up voter fraud strongly. Strongly. Um, strongly. And so what's so repulsive about it is not only how embarrassing it is, the whole world is watching this meltdown um, in the final days of the transition, all the different moving parts, you know, the the veto threats, the the elect the fraud grift, you know, the 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 whole thing, the electoral college fight. Everyone is watching. And last night was a spectacular disaster. But look at the Twitter threads from Kevin McCarthy and Lindsey Graham, who Axios reports this morning, both were doing the handholding. I guess Mnuchin was on the phone from his mansion in Cabo, also trying to talk him off the ledge. But it was these two key allies, the servile puppies, telling him that he would that he was going to have wins in a bill that he said was disgraceful, but now, of course, hasn't changed one one word um, by one word. And then they both tweeted that he that they thanked him for, you know, for the great things that he's done by signing this and the vaccine distribution and the needed relief to millions of suffering Americans and everything's going to be so super duper. Thanks, Mr. President. I mean, I don't I don't understand what what is the goal I guess Kevin McCarthy wants to be speaker in two years and he's afraid of a challenge. Lindsey Graham has won re-election. Donald Trump is leaving. What is he doing golfing with him on Christmas Day and mopping up this mess? That's all they're doing, mopping up the mess. And by the way, speaking of Steve Mnuchin, it's hard to imagine being humiliated more um, dramatically than, than the president. Uh, humiliated the guy that negotiated the whole package. And, you know, in a, in a normal world, uh, the Secretary of Treasury might have resigned after all of that. Maybe he just wanted to clean up the mess. But it's interesting that Steve Mnuchin thought it wouldn't be him, right? He thought he, that he thought everybody else would be eaten before him. And it turned out to be, it turned out to be his turn. But, you know, I, I think the, the Politico newsletter is right, that this is really the most fitting coda to uh, Trump's presidency in a neat encapsula encapsulization of encapsulation of his relationship with Congress. He never cared to understand the place and was disengaged from its work. But okay, just one point though that you made though that keeps I don't know why this bothers keep bothering me because you know Trump himself the fact that he's a liar and everything. I'm okay, we got that. It's the fact that people still believe it, and so he is pretending that he's got a rescission power that he can line item veto the bill, which he doesn't have. And so he puts out a statement saying that you know, he's redlining these wasteful spending things. And then what? He thinks that the rubes out there are going to go, there's Donald Trump fighting for us against wasteful spending when it's just completely fictitious. It is just made up. And, uh, you know, the fact that he would even throw it out either shows how little he understands about the way the process works or how indifferent he is or just the, the thorough contempt he has for his followers who are going to, you know, lap this up. It's all three, Charlie. Yeah. He's he he doesn't understand if he does, he doesn't care. And then you move on to position three, which is. These people who love me will buy whatever yeah. I'm selling. They always eat the dog food. They're not going to be reading the Wall Street Journal's breakdown of this and playbooks, um, you know, mocking of me, you know, just yeah, like because I got care. nothing. Yeah, he, do he doesn't care. Um, they are going to be receiving... <laughs> 
um, hair pants on fire, stop the steal text alerts asking for money they will send me today. And they will be reading Facebook crap and my Twitter feed. Okay. And they believe what I tell them. And that's all they believe. And that's all they need to believe. And, and it's worked for him so well, it's far. It's working right now with this whole election thing. I mean, he's, what he's going to raise, you know, $300 million, $400 million off of this scam. Okay, so speaking of scams, next, he, he's not done losing. So today he's going to have his vetoes uh, overridden, today and tomorrow, right? The veto of the uh, the national defense bill um, will be overridden, so he'll lose then. And then, of course, on January 6th, he's going to lose the presidency again, but he's still raising money on it, and he's still spent a lot of the Christmas holiday beating up on Republicans and, and encouraging his supporters to attack Republicans for not standing up for him, by which he means coming in on January 6th and overturning the Electoral College vote. Um, Illinois Congressman, Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger was uh, on CNN over the weekend, and he's been uh, you know, very outspoken saying, look, this whole thing is a grifter scam. I have a little bit of soundbite of uh, Congressman Adam Kinzinger. I expect there'll be a little chaos. This is a scam, though. I mean, you know, to explain to people that somehow Congress can overthrow the certified results of every state, that we can change an election outcome when there was not a single court case that had any legs. I mean, even if you believe that somehow the courts were, you know, inept in this whole process, if somehow you believe that this whole election was stolen, the reality is there is no impetus to overthrow an election even if you want to, and there's no ability to overthrow an election even if you want to. And so all that's being done is certain members of Congress, the president, et cetera, and, and you know, like, quote-unquote, thought leaders on Twitter are getting retweets, they're getting followers, they're raising money on this scam. It is a scam. It is going to disappoint the people that believe this election was stolen, that think this is an opportunity to change it. But instead of being disappointed in the people that led them on this grifting scam, they're going to somehow, you know, try to convince these people that it was, I don't know, what's the new word, the rhinos in Congress or something like that, and not the Constitution that prevents this from happening in the first place. We talk about the Constitution, we have to follow it, and I'm sorry if that doesn't mean that the outcome was what you wanted. A.B. Stoddard. Yeah, this is so stunning on so many levels. Adam Kinzinger is the only non-retiring Republican in the entire Congress who is speaking about this this way because Riggleman is, but he's retiring right. from Virginia. Mitt Romney has expressed some disappointment and some, some, some um, very measured Mitt Romney outrage, but he has not actually addressed the grift. And the fact that this is a, like a corrupt scam, and uh, and Adam Kinzinger is on an island, bravely talking about how much these people are being suckered and how it spreads beyond just the president himself, sort of a network of grifters. And I was stunned to read that someone checked the FEC filings and not one dollar that he has raised for the quote Georgia runoffs have gone to the Georgia runoffs that are a week Amazing. away. No, the interesting thing about all of this is, and again, for people who, I, I assume that most of our listeners have figured out what happens on January 6th, but you know, in the Constitution, if you, you pull out the Constitution and, and find out what the role of Congress is at this point, the Electoral College has actually voted. All the states have certified their votes. The role of the of the Congress is now to count the votes and announce the winner. And its role, that's its only role unless the unless no one has a majority. Uh, now, there is a 
there's a federal law that allows people to challenge the counting of some of the electoral votes. But in the Constitution itself, the Constitution does not give Congress the ability to overturn the Electoral College or to elect someone unless there is not a majority. Now, think about what what uh, Republicans would have to do. You'd have to have at least one senator, um, you know, in Tommy Tuberville, um, the uh, latest moronic uh, senator from Alabama, it says he's going to object. My guess is that other people who want to keep in favor with Trump world will jump on board as well. And then they'll have a debate in the House and they'll have a debate in the Senate and they'll have a, and they'll have a vote on all of this. I'm trying to imagine, though, the, I mean, think about the magnitude of senators or congressmen voting to throw out the electoral votes of, say, Pennsylvania or Wisconsin, when not a single court, not a single official in any of those states in their official capacity has said, yeah, these votes are not valid. I mean, think about that. They have to buy, they're going to have to buy the Lynn Wood, Sidney Powell, uh, you know, you know, conspiracy theories. They'll have to make arguments that have been rejected by federal courts, state courts, state Supreme Courts. Um, not a single Republican legislature has, uh, has uh, voted to overturn the election. And yet you will have a bunch of Republican congressmen and maybe senators who will vote to disenfranchise literally millions of Americans because what? That's what makes America great? Well, there are two motivating factors that make this on balance worth doing. One, uh, these, um, as House Speaker John Boehner used to call them knuckle draggers, believe that the, the gain from Trump world uh, and their primary voters is is greater than um, answering questions from their local reporters or even um, you know sane Republican officials in their state party or local party from the Republican Party of yesteryear about what you just laid out that the conspiracy would have to involve Republicans across the country and every judge including the, and, and, you know, combined with the Democrats to, um, and Venezuela and everyone else who's living or dead, right. To pull off this scam of cheating him out of being reelected in a landslide. And they, so they, whatever, whether, whatever grandmother they have to respond to local media, party officials, even former donors who are angry with them, they believe this outweighs the gain that they make with primary voters outweighs the the, the risk or the downside, right. and they believe it ingratiates themselves into the greasy world of Trump, where, as Bill points out last week, a lot of money is slushing around and could continue to in the future, and that the Twitter fame and the parlor fame and the potential money for their future elections and the hold on their still Trump-loving primary voters combined, those two things, right. and then the voters and the potential for the, you know, for the fame and the bucks make it worth absolutely destroying um, their reputation in, in reality, in the world of reality. And also then, you know, really taking a, a wrecking ball to the constitution and our system and opening up, you know, yet another precedent where we're completely corrupting the system. You know, one of the things that uh, Trump was saying over the weekend is that Republicans should, uh, you know, need to fight the way that Democrats would if it was if it was reversed. Well, a couple of people pointed out not a single Democratic senator 
objected to the counting of the electoral votes in 2000 when Al Gore was defeated, when they certainly would have expected it, that Democrats, in fact, did not challenge the election in 2004. They didn't challenge it. In, no senator stood up to challenge the election in 2016. In fact, there is an interesting video of Joe Biden uh, gaveling down member of the House who was trying to object to it. So the Democrats have had multiple opportunities to do this, and they haven't done it. But again, this is such an extreme step to try to overturn an election based on no credible evidence whatsoever. And I imagine that they will, again, be told over and over again, not a single court has found a single case of fraud that would have changed the result of this election. Um, this has been litigated. We have investigated it. We've gone through it. The Department of Justice, it said, you know, uh, Bill Barr himself said that there was no reason to believe that the that the uh, mistakes in the election or fraud in the election would have overturned the election. And yet they will do it anyway. And this should have been such an easy vote for them to say, this is what the con this is my constitutional duty. This is how democracy works. I'm going to uphold that. And yet they have convinced tens of millions of Americans that the right thing to do is to try to uh, push through this clown coup. Okay. So this takes place on January 6th, which is the day after the Georgia runoffs. What's your sense of what's going on there? I will tell you that my default setting is to assume that the Republicans are going to win because Republicans always win Georgia runoffs. Why would this be different? Your take, you know, you're, you're more knowledgeable than I am on this. No, I've been with you on this, that they, I think they're favored. I'm um, wondering how much, um, I guess the early voting numbers are looking good for Democrats and they're excited about that, but you know, people have fallen for that before, yeah. right? Um, I am wondering what kind of um, pain the um, defense veto override and or the, you know, the stimulus stuff, which John Ossoff is pushing very hard on Purdue. Mm -hmm. He's sort of, you know, he's sort of a better campaigner than, than Raphael Warnock, who's running against Kelly Loeffler. I mean, he's done this before and I'm not saying he's going to win, but you know, he doesn't let up on, on David Purdue. So it'll be interesting to see how much of that breaks through um, in terms of Trump putting these two candidates in a really bad box. So what does happen with, um, with, with, with Purdue in the $2,000? So the you know president claimed that he vetoed the bill, I mean, that he was not going to sign the, uh, the COVID relief bill because it only provided $600 a person. He wants $2,000 a person. House is going to pass that today, right? So then is, is the Senate going to take it up? Is Mitch McConnell going to force Republicans to vote on up or down on that? What, what's going to happen? See, that's so interesting because people were thinking, what would Mitch McConnell be doing to get Trump to sign the omnibus? One of the things was, I'll put your thing up on, on the floor for a vote to show you, you know, maybe you can get like Ron Johnson or all your buddies to vote for it, but maybe not. But that's all I can do for you. That's like a, you know, that's, it's sort of a give, Right. That has not been announced. Mm -hmm. um, Mitch McConnell doesn't usually like to do embarrassing stuff like that. Um, and I, 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 mean, I suppose he would if it would help Purdue and Leffler, but I don't. I just don't think that's going to happen. They've somehow dodged the $2,000 question and just ran around answering, you know, just tweeting about things that they want to tweet about, hoping that um, it would go away, and it went away on Sunday night. Um, but, but Mitch McConnell... This is such an interesting couple of next days, Charlie, because 
Mitch McConnell, you know, obviously has concluded that Donald Trump doesn't care about the Georgia runoffs in case. I, I, in, in fact, I think he, you know, I, we don't even know if he really wants two Republicans to win in a state he lost. I mean, we just don't know that, right? So um, I'm just really fascinated to learn months from now what the conversations in, De- uh, in late December between McConnell and the president have been like, because there's... So there's something left for McConnell to gain from Trump, but there's nothing left from Trump to gain from McConnell. So, um, you know, it's very possible after a veto override that Trump goes even more nuts on Twitter. You know, they're not fighting for me. The Democrats always fight. They're weenies. Mitch McConnell by name in the tweets. I mean, it's this is a rocky couple days before January 5, and it's and there's still potential for him to really embarrass Leffler and Purdue and McConnell and really screw things up. And he's supposed to be there a week from tonight for a rally. Yeah, that what could what could go wrong? OK, <laughs> now, speaking of, of what, what he's capable of doing over the next few days, because I agree with you that, uh, that the rage will only increase. I mean, losing that uh, the defense bill has got to be embarrassing, uh, seeing that people are saying that he, you know, got taken to the cleaners on the the COVID relief bill and the omnibus bill. That's going to enrage him when it becomes more and more apparent that he's not going to be able to overturn the election. By the way, he's, apparently he's what he's calling his supporters to protest in 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 Washington calling them all in to have some mass demonstration. I mean, what could go wrong there? What difference does it make at this point that somebody like Rupert Murdoch's, uh, that the the New York Post, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch, would do a front page, basically, please stop the insanity, Mr. President. I mean, this is getting a lot of attention. Post says, Mr. President, stop the insanity. You lost the election. Here's how to save your legacy. And says Sidney Powell is a crazy person. Michael Flynn suggested martial law is tantamount to treason. It is. I mean, Mark, I'm sorry. Michael Flynn suggesting martial law is tantamount to treason. It is shameful. D- does any of that make any difference to Trump? That that even the New York Post is telling him stop it. You're you're, you're going out like a crazy man. I don't have the quote in front of me, but in the early days after the election, the uh, local paper in Las Vegas, and I'm so sorry that, is it the Journal Review? Yeah. I I'm, I don't have the name on the tip of my tongue, but it's owned by yeah, Sheldon Adelson, wrote an editorial basically saying like, let it go. Like, there's no evidence of mass fraud. And, and, and there were, it was pretty yeah. firm. It was pretty aggressive editorial. Trump does not care. He's embarrassed because he loves the New York Post, but he's not going to listen to Rupert Murdoch and the rhinos at the Wall Street Journal and everyone else who's, you know, editorializing against him when he's, you know, leading a movement and and it's him against the world and his supporters want to see him fighting off the establishment. So I no, I don't think that um, humbles him at all. In fact, I just think it makes him more angry. But I don't think I think it's embarrassing to him because he likes the New York Post uh, and Time Magazine and you know the things that he grew up with. But um, but I don't think it would it would calm him down or stop him or make him I agree with you, but let me, let me give you a, a counterpoint to all of this, which is that, is that um, I keep wondering, how is he going to, you know, back off or cave or surrender after January 6th? Well, what possible way? Well, maybe last night was kind of an indication that you get some of his sycophants together. You know, the lick spittles realize the spittle won't lick itself. So they're always there, <laughs> there and telling him, you know, you have this great legacy. You, you can come back. You can do all sorts of things. That The fact that he backed away from the brink with the government shutdown and the coronavirus bill, 
does at least give some indication that he might back away from the brink of refusing to leave or something like that. If you can convince him, don't do this. It's terrible. It would be disastrous. People would hate you. Um, plus, you know, here's your, your wonderful, fantastic legacy that you can, you, you can protect. So maybe it's a little bit of a model that he can be persuaded, uh, to not fully embrace the crazy. Well, there are two th- leaving and then blowing the place up on the way out the door, are two yeah. separate things. I think he'll mm-hmm. do both. And so this idea that he's going to stay, um, in the Oval Office with a, b- with a bunch of explosives, handmade explosives that Don Jr. gave him, and and won't come out. Um, I think I think we can, you know, we can um, relax into the fact that there will be a transition of power. It's just that he will never acknowledge uh, that he lost the election. He will continue this fiction and he'll continue attacking people because the because his supporters you know, they want retribution. And that's what I wrote about a few weeks ago when I said he is actually going to break the Republican Party because he kind of has to, because it's all about the fight. It's all about, um, you know, taking prisoners. It's it's not about leading or uniting or even running for president again. That's a total, you know, that's a fake front that he's going to put up to raise money and stay on TV. But he doesn't want to run for president again. But he, he has to fight Mitch McConnell and and John Thune and do stuff like that. And, and, and Brian Kemp of Georgia and, and Doug Ducey of Arizona, because he needs, um, he needs enemies and he needs people um, that his supporters can be mad at. And so that that's the problem is that, you know, he's going to go through with January 6th. There's no way you talk him down from that. I cannot imagine any way you talk him down from the drama, the worldwide audience made for TV final Trump show. That. Mm. He will not back down from that. People fighting for him. Jim Jordan just, you know, bursting his neck veins. I mean, that is that is what Donald Trump needs and craves the most. So January 6th is non-negotiable. What he does after that, I'm not so certain. But I know he'll actually leave the White House grounds. He's just going to be bellowing the whole no, way. I think you're probably right on all of that. You have a piece uh, up at Rear Clear Politics, though, that makes – what what I think is, is is such an interesting point that if the president wants to go out on a high point, the easiest, the lowest hanging possible fruit is for him to embrace the vaccines that were developed and are now being distributed under his watch. He's got a month left in office. You have a piece that argues that Trump now needs to step up on the vaccines. So, you know, walk me through this. I mean, because this is this should be an easy win for Trump at this point. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you, I mean, you, is... you point out, look, he could lead, he could unite the country. He could save lives. Is he following his followers or can he lead instead? What are the odds that he will? So what are the odds that he will? I think the odds are slim to none that he will. He's not, he showed us that the minute people started getting vaccinated, like Mike Pence, the vice president, he stopped talking about the vaccine. So he was excited about the vaccine. Even after the election, he had a, a, a publicity you know, event where he also ranted about the election, um, about the vaccine. But he has now dropped, he's lost interest in the vaccine. And he is not interested in taking it or even sort of taking it privately and coming out or even saying, because I had COVID, I have to wait to take the vaccine, but I wish I could take it now. And I want, my whole family is going to take it as soon as possible. It's so important that our frontline workers take it. I'm so glad our doctors and nurses are getting it. I can't wait for our seniors to get it. He is not interested in the vaccine. If he was, we would know it. 
And it's the easiest way to turn around from the wreckage and go out on a high note. It is the thing he can claim so credit going for. On? What is take, going on? And sort of take from Joe Biden, right? Instead, what he's trying to do is impair the vaccine project, this unprecedented historic vaccine project that's, that Biden will inherit. He's just trying to make it, you know, imperil it and make it more cumbersome and difficult. But he's not trying to convince his supporters to take the vaccine. He's not trying to promote vaccinations and even celebrate his own accomplishment. And it, it seems to have stopped around the time that people started getting vaccinated. This is really remarkable because, you know, and you raised the question, does does he lead or does he follow? Uh, does he follow? And I think this is one of the underappreciated aspects of Trumpism is that he watches which way his base is going and then he goes there. You know, as opposed to the other way around, that he's extremely yeah. reluctant to distance himself in any way from his hardcore base. And he knows how many of them are suspicious of uh, government. They're suspicious of science. They're suspicious of, of the vaccines. And he does not want to get crosswise, even if that means basically turning his back on what ought to be w one of his own legacies. It's amazing. It's it really is amazing. And it's, it's, the, it's so interesting because he's been anti-science the entire time with the exception of the yeah. vaccine, anti-mask, anti-testing, anti-tracing. Ivanka Trump, after the election, revealed in a tweet that her father has been working with Moderna on this vaccine since January 13th of 2020. So months before he, well, has he ever stopped lying about the coronavirus? I guess he's never stopped lying about it, but he, you know, he lied about it all through January, February, March, April, uh, and on and on. And and so this has been a priority for him since the early days of Wuhan. And um the and and again, it could be this this is this wonderful legacy for him. But I think you're right that he does he he follows the followers, he gets nervous when they resist something, and now that he's trying to get money out of them and he's doing it so successfully, you know, do they stop supporting the the stop the steal if He's pushing too hard on vaccines. I mean, I don't know how his no. mind works. That's really, you know, with regard to addressing them. But on, on the one hand, he tends to think he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and they wouldn't leave him. And on the other hand, um, he doesn't want to get crosswise with them because now he really needs them probably so, more than, you know, who what did. is what is Marco Rubio's uh, in game here? Marco Rubio, who pushed himself to the head of the line, got a vaccine last week, um, spent uh, the weekend tweeting out attacks on Anthony Fauci for lying. So where where is that going? What What is what is the upside for Marco Rubio? of attacking Anthony Fauci at the time when, when Fauci is going to be one of the most important figures in selling the vaccines. Same thing? This is the best. I mean, this is the most not only cringy, but pathetic microcosm of how Republicans attempt to crawl out of the hole of Trump and do this straddle where they're pugnacious and they're skeptics of experts and elites, but they take the vaccine and want to clear up the infection rate, sort of, and open the economy, sort of, even though we could never open the economy without controlling the virus. And we've never had a plan to control the spread of the virus. So this, this, this tweet just literally sums up. I have no idea what Marco Rubio's specific plans are. If he thinks that he can be president, if he thinks he should be senator again after last time not wanting to be and being talked into it at the last minute after being so, you know, humiliatingly defeated by Donald Trump in, in 16. 
I don't know what Marco Rubio is thinking specifically for himself, but the idea that he can bash Tony Fauci right after he took the vaccine in a way that, you know, it maybe, maybe technically doesn't contradict, you know, the, 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 the I don't know, the, the willingness to take a vaccine um, because you're still just protecting people who don't want to be talked down to or something. But it'll be so interesting to see how the rest of them handle this. You know, the people we know are running for president. Um, it, it's just it, it's just embarrassing. You held the bag all this time. You still stink because of it. And good luck to you trying to be the populist warrior without Trump uh, while living in reality and winning back suburban voters while you're beating up on you know, experts who are trying to get us out of the worst. I mean, America is the worst example globally. None of this had to happen here. You know, we're the strongest country on earth. We had the worst response to the coronavirus. And pretending that this is like still a culture war nine months in or or I guess a year into knowing what we knew was going on in China is outrageous. Just we can only hope that 2021 will be better than 2020. So not sure I'll talk to you until next <laughs> it has year, AB. Thank you, Charlie. I look forward to. I'm look forward to giving 2020 the heave ho and and uh, a better 2020 language than heave ho. But uh, we'll, we we will get to that <laughs> in our podcast later this week. Uh, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very much. And thank you all thank for listening you. to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again. <laughs>